My life doesn't make sense. I used to ask myself a lot of questions about that. Scott, you just saved the quantum realm with your family and drank a guy without holes. Why does this kind of stuff keep happening to you? That doesn't make any sense. But you know what? Who said life has to make sense? You're a real artist. It's been a pretty wild ride. One day you're fired from Baskin Robbins, the next you're beating a time-traveling space king. We did beat him, right? I mean, yeah, that, that's what happened. He, he was getting out and he didn't get out. I think. But he, he also said something bad was coming and that everyone would die if he didn't get out. Wait, so did I just kill everyone? Is everyone gonna die because of me? Oh my God. Oh my, what, what did I do? What, what did, what, what did I do? You know what? It's probably fine. Hey everybody, I'm Joel Murphy. And I'm Auntie McIntyre. Say Auntie McIntyre? I don't know what you're I don't know what you're talking about. I heard Auntie McIntyre. I that's insane. Okay. I you know, I'm probably hearing that. I probably have ants on the brain. Maybe. Yeah. And, but anyways, and, I'm Auntie McIntyre. Okay, that time I definitely heard Auntie McIntyre. You're let's just do the podcast. And this is Silver Linings Playback, the podcast where we watch maligned movies and we find their silver linings. And we find their silver linings. Wait. <laughs> what? Okay. All right. I'm watching you. And I it's... wasp just talking about the movie. <laughs> and it's 2024. Can you believe it? Holy crap. It's 2024. What happened to 2023? I know. It's weird, right? Like, I don't know about you, Andy, but to me, in some ways, it feels like it still is 2023. Yeah. It's like, you know, I'm still writing 2023 on all my checks. Yeah. And it's like, I don't even remember Christmas or New Year's. They all kind of feel like a blur. It's yeah, almost just whizzed as, by. This is going to sound weird, but it's almost like, like we were still recording this at the end of 2023 and not the beginning of 2024. Yeah. It's like, because obviously these are broadcast live one time. Yeah. I think anyone who's listened would agree with that. Yeah. They're done in real time. <laughs> Whenever you listen to it, when so, that's what we do. We sit around. And we wait for the first person to hit play on their podcast, the app. This is how all podcasts do it, by the way. It's not just it us. It is. Yeah. You every have, podcast does it this way. Yeah. And then you get a little light on your computer and you're like, oh, it's go time. And then you do the podcast. Yep. We just wait and wait and wait. Some weeks we don't record at all. And then some weeks we record a whole lot. Mm -hmm. But that's, yeah, that's uh, so, yeah, obviously this is 2024 because that's when you, the person, are listening to it. So yes, you are, dear listeners, all hit play simultaneously, 6 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, Monday. Well, that is what's fascinating is that the longer you do a podcast, they say your audience starts to sync up. Yeah, it's a, it, it's a weird bit of uh, parallel thought and synergy around the world. And every human being on Earth hits play Monday, 6 a.m. Eastern Time. Uh, to listen to us talk about movies and find their silver linings. 
Yeah, which I really admire. You keep saying Eastern time, but I admire the people on the West Coast that are waking up at 3 a.m. It's impressive. Yeah, I, that's why I want to say like 6 a.m. Eastern is when, you know, that's that's it's my time zone. And so I, I'm just basing everything off of that East Coast bias, you know, how it goes. Yeah. Unfortunately, yeah, I heard this- I heard a rhyme that you're going to find devastating. And it was told to me by one of Molly's little cousins. Uh oh. East Coast is the least coast. West Coast is the best coast. Oof, that that hurts. It is, and it's yeah. I just it's really catchy. That yeah, that uh, that is super catchy. Um, I can't even uh, deal with how much that hurt. <laughs> what was that? You you what? what? Was what? I can't even deal with it. Okay. I mean, I must be hearing something. I'm a 2024 resolution. I gotta get my hearing checked. Well, Hank Pym, you for finally doing that. Okay, what was that? Sorry. I don't know what you're talking about. I, this is no. Insane. I'm just literally. What sentence did you just say? I said Hank Pym, you for finally doing that. Hank Pym, me for finally doing that. Yeah, thank you for finally doing that. What did you hear? I heard Hank Pym, me for finally that's, doing that. That's a whole bunch of Michelle Pfeiffer. I'm just gonna say it. It is. That's fair. All right, but I, 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 you know, like if in case it wasn't clear, we are talking about uh, Ant Man and the Wasp, Quantum Mania, and I also don't think we've properly set this up. But no, we've not. That is because this laser focus you come to expect. But yeah, what we were doing as we has become a tradition on the show. This is the third year we're doing it, and that, as we all know, if you do it three years, it's a tradition. Uh, we are going through the uh, like maligned movies from the previous year. We're trying to to start out by sort of cleansing and sort of like reassessing and finding that positive spin on some of the more infamous films of the previous year. And what a great place to start uh, then with the most clear evidence of superhero fatigue, especially MCU fatigue, Ant-Man and Quantumania. Yeah, I think it is worth taking a moment because there's two things to talk about when we talk about this film. There's the movie that we all actually watched. And then there's what the movie represents and what it's a part of, which is 30 some films in a shared cinematic universe that is now stretched well over a decade. Yeah, it's 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 a, about 15 years worth of films. Yeah, and so there like when this movie came out, I remember I saw it in the theater probably opening day, but if not then opening weekend for sure. And I watched it and it it's not my favorite MCU movie and I definitely think it has flaws and we will discuss all that, but I was like, "Yeah, it's all right." But then the overwhelming response was Marvel's lost it. Yeah. Um, and I think the most surprising thing about all that, I ended up missing it in theaters and not seeing it until it was streaming. And I was excited about it. But then I heard a lot of tepid responses from people that liked it. And then I just waited. Um, but like apparently, according to IMDb trivia, which I have to assume is true and accurate, and it's what I live my life by. Mm hmm. I, um, for is, the record, I live my life a quarter mile at a time. Well, yeah, I, while I'm driving that quarter mile, I check IMDb trivia to know 
how fast it's going. It's very unsafe. And that's a cause of a lot of you've clearly never seen those like Werner Herzog ads that tell you not to be on your phone when you're driving. Don't be on your phone while driving the car. Okay, so you know the ads, but you're <laughs> I choose to ignore them because I don't listen to Germans. <laughs> okay. It's fair. Um is that uh, apparently the the top brass at uh, Marvel Studios were sure that this was going to be a hit. They were very excited about the release. And then when it essentially flopped, uh, failed to recoup its expenses and all, uh, they're like, wow, are we that out of touch that we didn't, that we missed the, the mark so much with this movie? I also, I believe if I can trace this properly for you, because I read the same thing, it's a piece of IMDb trivia uh, that is attributed to a Vulture article that is quoting Joanna Robinson, uh, who who is a great pop culture writer who uh, wrote a book about Marvel and did a bunch of interviews. Uh, and so that is the reporting. I, I will admit to not having backtracked all of that either, but I did recognize her name. And if she yeah. did say this, I trust it. Yeah, it seems it seems a trusted source. And. I don't know. I was I know like from the trailers and you know all of that, I was excited for Quantumania. And then um I think it was the with the exception of Black Widow, it was the first MC movie I didn't see in the theaters. Yeah. Yeah, which is pretty crazy. Yeah, because obviously none of us saw Black. I don't think anyone saw Black Widow in the theater because that came out. I, I remember that was one that I did pay to watch it on Disney Plus, where you had to pay some ridiculous amount of money i didn't do that i I didn't i didn't see the eternals in the theaters either i my friend i saw the eternals in the theater and it's the only marvel movie that i ever considered walking out during oof yeah yeah the eternals is is not good yeah and neither is this but it's better than the eternals but i will say when i watched this early silver lining didn't want to leave the theater i didn't want to leave my house yeah, but I. That's good. I'm glad. Yeah, I I didn't want to turn it off. Um, I've actually, I think I've seen this three times. As a matter of fact. Oh, I've now seen it twice, but the second time was for this discussion. So. Um, I saw it like right after it went to streaming. And then I watched it again because I just did a rewatch start to finish timeline order of the MCU because I just felt it was easy to distract like sort of white noise TV. Uh, and then I wanted to watch it with a little bit more of a close eye because I definitely slept through most of it. I think I put it on while I took a nap. Um, so I wanted to watch it with a close eye. So this is my third viewing of Ant-Man and the Wasp in Quantum Mania. Well, since you said it that way, that specific phrase that you wanted to watch it with a close eye, I, I think this is as good a time as any to bring up a major issue that I have with this movie because I saw it as we've covered for the first time in a theater setting. And now, today, I watched it in my home during the daytime. And here's the thing. When you try to watch this movie with any amount of daylight coming into your windows in your normal home that is not a giant movie theater, it is almost impossible to watch about 60% of this movie. Yeah, the lighting is very weird. Weird and dark and just impossible. My biggest soapbox for all filmmakers, if you're listening, movies have gotten way too dark. But particularly this movie, 
I it's just there were long stretches that I was like, well, okay, I guess I'm not watching what happens in this scene. I remember it from the theater when I could see it. Yeah. Um, and it's a shame too because there's a lot of this movie that I don't think enough to call it a full on silver line, but there's a lot of this movie that looks really good, and then a lot of it that doesn't. And apparently that's just the overworked uh, Marvel tech teams. Yeah, which, again, good as time as any to once again go to our friends at IMDb. You probably read this quote, too. But I think it is worth uh, just reading this, that there was sort of an anonymous VFX artist who uh, talked about his experience or her experience working on this film. And they said... In terms of priority, Wakanda Forever was definitely at the top of the list. All the money went to that. All the best resources went to that. It's understandable given the context with Chadwick and everything and how well the first film did, but it did diminish the ability to carry Ant-Man all the way through. For Ant-Man, there were a lot of editorial changes happening towards the latter third and fourth of the project that were just too late. There was a point of no return. Why certain things were changed, why certain notes were nitpicked longer than they should have been, that's on Marvel. But it definitely did cause a lot of tension, turmoil, and weight on everybody at Company Name Redacted. Unfortunately, it was noticeable that there were shortcuts. Certain things were used to cover up incomplete work. Certain editorial cuts were made to not show as much action or effects as there could have been, likely because there just wasn't enough time to render everything. That's not Sounds good. That's right. That's, that's not it, a good thing. That's not, it's not it's, good. It's, and I, I do think it shows on the screen. <laughs> like, I think you noticed that. And I honestly wouldn't be surprised if that's why the movie is so dark, because that does cover up more of what yeah. you're watching. I mean, especially in the early days, like the mid to late 90s, <clears throat> early days of CGI, a lot of stuff was really dark or raining to try to cover up less than stellar CGI work. Yeah, usually like night or yeah, like you said, rain. There's certain tricks that you can do to help you because you don't have to do as many lighting effects. You don't have to render it quite as crisp as you would on a brightly lit sunny day. So yeah, for oh. every uh, brontosaurus in the middle of the field in the opening when they first get to Jurassic Park, there's a lot of uh, Hulk fighting the Hulk dogs. Yeah, so that seems almost unwatchable both content wise and just visually. Yes. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's been a big problem in Marvel for a long time. There, there's much has been said and written about it, but with, there really needs to be some kind of change. I mean, it's, it's one of those things too, where even something like when, uh, across the spider verse came out, which I love that movie. Then there were articles that came out about that, about how overworked the VFX artists were like VFX artists, are the unsung heroes of movies and they're all treated terribly and not paid enough. Yeah. Uh, un unequivocally, uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe doesn't work without the VFX artists. I mean, the number of characters that are just computer generated. And what's wild to me is that I think on the whole, the MCU's special effects have been phenomenal. Yes. But they've never won a best special effects Oscar or best visual effects. Yeah, I, it's an interesting thing where we're now, it seems like hitting a decline period of Marvel. I would never count them out completely, but it, it definitely seems like this film might be remembered as a sort of turning point in their luck. But 
during their height, and especially with, you know, Infinity War and Endgame kind of being, to me, the peak of their work, the fact that they were really never nominated for much of anything, as far as Academy Awards go, which, like, you know, maybe you don't think that they should be nominated for, for writing or for Best Picture or whatever. I disagree on some of them and agree on others, but it is weird that something that shaped movies and something that will be looked back at as the major phenomenon of certainly like the 2010s, like when you look back at like what was big, Marvel has no significant Academy Awards to show for it. Yeah, um, I think Wakanda Forever is the only one that's won. I think the I think Black Panther did win. Or not Black, not Wakanda Forever, Black Panther. Yeah, Black Panther won a, a few, and I think Wakanda Forever might have won. It um the the set design won both times. Yes, deservedly so, so. Yes, but yeah, it's it's been like mostly technical awards that were given to really just those two movies. Um, and I I I genuinely thought that Endgame was going to get the Return of the King treatment. It should have. I think it's as significant an accomplishment in movies. Yes. And I I mean, my personal opinion is that Infinity War should have been nominated for Best Picture. Yes. It was, I mean, it was, I would say as, as a memorable a cinematic experience as I've had. Yeah, it's it's great. And I know during the pandemic, I when I was really missing movie theaters, what I thought about a lot was honestly the experience of watching Endgame in a theater, which is one of the most fun experiences I ever had of just, you know, a whole crowd of like, you know, it's when it was opening, nobody had seen it, nobody knew what to expect. And it was just like packed with very enthusiastic fans like myself who you lost it at every moment that we were supposed to lose it at, you know, it was basically every moment of that movie. Yeah, but it was great. And I, and I loved it. And look, they, I, I want to be clear on all this. And I think you do too, of like, we love the MCU and we love Marvel films and what they did is truly impressive. And it's, I won't say it will never be replicated, but it's hard to imagine that it'll be replicated. And certainly for the last almost 15 years, every studio has said, okay, we need to do that Marvel thing and create a shared cinematic universe of interconnected movies. And to date, uh, let me check my notes here. Uh, nobody's done it. No, it's never worked once. Nope. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I uh, I have no doubt that Marvel will release other great movies. Yeah. And I, I mean, think, I think it's a given. They're but sitting I, on be, the X-Men right now. I will be shocked if they ever get to the heights of infinity war and endgame yeah which i also maybe this is getting ahead of ourselves because we were gonna like really drum down and, and talk about the movie itself but since we're talking bigger picture it does kind of feel like maybe the the writing is on the wall with how people didn't like this and then the marvels which i enjoyed more than i enjoyed this i i like the film the marvels but you could see with that one, people didn't even go to see it. I don't even know that it's maligned as much as it's just people didn't go to watch it. Well, 
But the weird thing is with the lessened movie attendance, it's one of the biggest November releases in a very long time. Right. It's also the most successful release by a black woman filmmaker of all time. Yeah. There's a lot. It's, it's just there's, there's some weird inconsistent statistics about it. But the, the definitely the, the perception and a lot of data shows to back up that perception is that no one went and saw it. Yeah. Um, I, in fact, know someone who didn't go see it. Because he's me. Oh, well, I know someone who did see it because he's me. And I want to see it, but I'm a busy, busy boy. Yeah, well, it happens. But uh, but yeah, I, I think that it's it's sort of it's a snowball effect of like, I think there was always, you know, like people have been talking about superhero fatigue since the beginning and predicting it. Since like Spider-Man 3, I think, is when it first started popping and like X-Men The Last Stand. Right. And so I think that that was always talked about. And with the MCU, it was honestly, it, it was always going to be unsustainable. And I think we can all try to guess why or look at why it happened. I think some of it was just the combination of expanding too much. Once you added all the shows in and then all the movies and you lost a lot of the people that the characters that people had come to know and love, this core group of Avengers all kind of aged out or retired out and so now it's a new crop that haven't been established as well and you have to watch 10 shows to know what's going on and it all starts to feel like homework at some point yeah and like as excited as someone might be about oscar isaac playing moon knight like yes when it's unclear what will matter you know, down the road, because sometimes stuff feels like it will and it maybe it doesn't come back. And Moon Knight certainly feels like something at this point that you might not have to worry about. Maybe Moon Knight will show up again, but it doesn't seem integrated into anything else. And they just have had a general lack of momentum since Endgame, where obviously this film was meant to be building towards the next big Avengers team up, but people weren't into this. And also I'm not even clear who the Avengers would be in that movie at this point. Yeah. It's, it's one of the reasons that infinity war and Endgame worked is that they were really almost culminating the Avengers trilogy as much as they were the three stages of the cinematic movie uh, universe, because like Endgame doesn't work as well without the first Avengers movie and without age of Ultron. Like you need those steps to get there and you need and that works because there is this team of Avengers and that is the team of Avengers. That is the through line through uh, even Infinity War and Endgame. Uh, and there isn't like they're doing Kang Dynasty is the next Avengers title and then Secret Wars is the the follow up. But there's no like even Captain America Civil War, which is basically Avengers 2.5. There's nothing like that either. There's no there's no team right now. No, and it's not good that this movie we're talking about right now, and if we did TV shows, we'd for sure for 2023 be talking about Secret Invasion and how that might be the worst thing that Marvel's ever made. Oh, it's, I mean, it's definitely the worst MCU thing by a significant margin. Yeah. And, and so, I hate Iron Man 3. Yeah, me too. Yeah, we've, we've talked about this a lot. Iron Man 3 and Thor The Dark World were always kind of my floor for a long time, but... I think this is the new floor. This is the new Caddyshack 2 of the MCU. <laughs> yeah, I will say I never hated Thor at the Dark World, but it's like it's just there. Yeah, I think Iron Man 3 was, in my opinion, the worst movie, but also people love that movie, too. 
And I don't, I, I, I think it's just because people love RDJ. And people love, uh, what's his name? Shane Black. Ty Simpkins. Yeah. Uh, the little kid. Yeah, yeah. People do love Shane Black, and I like Shane Black, but I, mean, I hate that movie. Nice Guys, fantastic. I recommend watching that as soon as you get a chance. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang is great. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he's he's had some bangers. Iron Man 3, not one of them. No. Yeah. Um, but let's talk about Quantumania in earnest. Um, I mean, the, the opening credits kind of set the stage for what the movie is about, and this... Yeah, I wanted. I man, I wanted to like this movie more than I did. And there's moments where I was like, "Oh wait, was this movie better than I remembered?" And then I was like, "Nope, it's about exactly as good as I remembered." Well, here, okay, so we kind of did a big picture, and I, like I said, I think people were sort of maybe wanting Marvel to fail, or people were looking for cracks in the armor of of Marvel. But if we throw all that out and we just look at this movie, in my mind. Even VFX problems, which are a problem, there's a lot of things, like little things. But I think the biggest issue with this movie, as far as I'm concerned, is it's not what we want from Ant-Man. No. Um, and I'm not even saying I don't want an Ant-Man adventure in the quantum realm, because I think that was something I did want. Well, it's, but- it's certainly that is set up. All of the movies are always talking about the quantum realm. That makes total sense to me to be a place that he would go. Tonally, though, this yeah. movie is not an Ant-Man movie. Like, Ant-Man movies are fun and silly and Paul Rudd. And more importantly, they're Michael Pena and T.I. and David Dasmalchian playing someone with seven holes and not no holes. <laughs> uh, and Judy freaking Greer. Yeah. Uh, yeah. First of all, Judy Greer needs to be in these movies, and that is a crime. And also, yeah. Get Dasmal Chain the correct amount of holes. Yeah. I've said it once, said it a hundred times. He's at his best when he plays characters with a minimum of the seven holes in a human body. Well, because, yeah, and if you look at the Dark Knight, by the end of that, he had an eighth hole that he had that cell phone hidden inside. I think that was him, right? I know he's in that no, movie. No, that wasn't him. No. Who is he in that movie? I know that he's he's one of the crazy people in the Dark Knight. Anyway, he probably had an extra hole by the end of that movie. A lot of people did. Um, yeah, no. And uh, I mean, when he played the uh, the spot or the the polka dot man, there was other holes. He made like made holes with the polka dots. Yeah. Um, yeah, so. Get holes for David Dustmalchian. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> but no, but for real, there was a crew there. There's a team. And that's one of the fun things. Like if you look at it, and it's interesting. I feel like this is an interesting parallel in that there are only two franchises in the MCU that have had the same director for three films. You could put an asterisk on this because technically Edgar Wright was the director of the first Ant-Man until he left. But outside of that, Peyton Reed has done all three Ant-Man films. And then you have... um. Who is it that does the Spider-Man? It's Webb, right? Isn't his last name Webb? No, Webb was the one that did um, the Garfield ones. Okay. who's Whoever does it now. But whoever's done it now has done three of them. Right. And they're the only time that people have done three uh, in the same series. Right. But that's what I'm saying. So they have that in common. They're both trilogies with the same director for all three. The Spider-Man movies, what's fun about them and what you like is... 
you got Peter's school, his classmates. You get to see him. You get to see MJ. You get to see Ned. You get to see Aunt May. All of those people. That's what we want. Because it's like the big team up movies are where we get to see. We want to see Spider-Man talk to Iron Man and everybody meet. And that's really exciting. But then in the the standalone movies, they got to have their own crew and their own like world. And, and maybe there's the cameo from another movie or whatever, but sure. But then, yeah, to to remove every and it, it could have been as simple as, again, they go in the quantum realm. Sure. But why not leave one person? I mean, did Michael Douglas need to be in the quantum realm in this movie? What if he was on the outside trying to get him back? And then all of the people that we love from these previous movies are just in his house helping. And then, first of all, no, hold on. I got it. Because then Michael Pena shows up first looking for, uh, you know, for Ant-Man and he's not there. And and, uh, Michael Douglas fills him in on what's been happening. And then eventually when everyone else shows up, Michael Douglas is about to explain it. And he goes, no, I got it. And then he has to explain what's happened up until that point. I was going to say, as long as uh, Michael Pena is recapping things, yeah. that's all that needs to happen. I mean, that's the biggest reason to malign this movie is that Michael Pena is not in it and doesn't recap anything. Yeah, no, that's I mean, that is. I think almost everything else is nitpicky and ticky tacky. Yeah. Except maybe Modoc, <laughs> uh, but everything else, like the biggest thing to malign it, like Michael Pena is with maybe the exception of another Silver Linings playback movie, um, A Wrinkle in Time, is the best thing in every movie he's in. Yeah. And that is true of both Ant-Man movies. Yeah, like unequivocally true of both Ant-Man movies. And, and I, I it, like both Ant-Man movies. I do too. But it's noticeable that he's not in this one. And you like we do feel that and you want him to be in it. And like, why not have a Michael Pena type voiced by Michael Pena in the quantum realm. Why not? Yeah. I mean, honestly, would you have cared if Michael Pena's character was just in the quantum realm? And then they were like, what are you doing in the quantum realm? And then like, he, Oh man, it's a funny story. You see, uh, yeah. So I was, I was hanging out with my homies and then, and then I saw this device in your, your garage and I was like, Oh, what's this? Maybe it'll make a cappuccino hit the button and boom, I'm in the quantum realm. And next thing I know, I'm hanging out with this broccoli. <laughs> and then this guy tells me to drink him and then I can hear him. So, yeah, man, you got to drink the ooze. <laughs> yeah. Come on. Already a better movie. Already a better movie. So uh, MC Feige, holler at your boys. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think just like they because of all the things that we talked about, that there isn't a clear team that for some reason they decided that the weight, the the weight of of setting up the future movies felt to Ant-Man, which if you think about it previously, that was really Captain America was sort of, you know, we're going to use the Captain America movies to, to introduce the winter soldier and to, to do civil war. Like these are all Captain America movies. We're, we're using him because he's the heart and soul of the team. And he's, he's the guy, you know, he's the super important. He's the leader of the Avengers. Yeah. He's the leader of the Avengers. And so that made sense. And now he's gone. So you're like (laughs) Ant-Man and he, Ant-Man is, is not Captain America, nor should he be. No. And, and Scott Lang is not even the most famous Ant-Man. That's true. Yeah. 
um, you know, for one and for two, he's a, like, I love Paul Rudd. I love what he does as Ant-Man. I love what he does as Scott Lang. Scott Lang is a second tier Avenger at best. Yeah. yeah for- and, that, and I don't mean that as a knock. I just mean that as a statement of fact. No, it's 100% a statement of fact. Um, you know, and, you know, affable and jovial and charismatic enough to carry a franchise, but not as a- Scott Lang Ant-Man. Yeah. And I do think it's worth noting that Paul Rudd, who is one of the most charismatic and, and effortlessly funny people on the planet, is credited as a co-writer of the previous two Ant-Man films and is not on this one. Yeah. And I think that lack of Paul Rudd comedy is palpable when you watch it. You can definitely get a sense of that he's not there. And I look, I I don't want to in any way pick on Jeff Loveness, but I I do who wrote this screenplay. But I do think it's important to note something about him, which is he this is his first screenplay, but the job he had before this was writing for Rick and Morty. And I think one of the other things that I like when I watched this movie without knowing that the first time I went, this movie reminds me a lot of Rick and Morty. Yeah, no, there's there is um, a Rick and Morty vibe without like there's no Rick character. There's no Morty character or anything like that. But there's what is what is all the Kangs at the end, if not a Council of Ricks, which is based on the loosely based on both the Council of Reeds and the Council of Kangs. Right. But I mean, it's so it's a weird thing where it's like, well, and it's a semi dysfunctional family trying their best in these surreal circumstances, which is a recurring theme of Rick and Morty. Right. Yeah. So it's a weird thing where I and to be clear, and, and I'm glad you pointed it out, like. Obviously, Rick and Morty didn't invent any of the sci-fi stuff that it explores, but there at this point is a Rick and Morty way of exploring those things. And it just felt very noticeable to me that they hired a Rick and Morty writer to... Well, I think because it worked so well with Loki that they figured, let's do another one. Yeah, which, yeah, if people don't know as well, uh, Michael Waldron, who does Loki and who I believe wrote the Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. So all of their uh, multiverse and quantum realm films have been using Rick and Morty writers. Yeah. Um, and no, it definitely feels like... If, if Rick and Morty had, like, walked by, it wouldn't have looked out of place. Right. You wouldn't have been able to see him because it was so dark. But but if right. honestly, if if Dasmel Chain had just at one point gone, oh, geez, like as his whole oh, geez. <laughs> or if uh, Hank Pym had just belched his way through the whole movie. I would have been all right with that. I, I'm same. Um, yeah, like this movie is a pretty standard, like. Let's lead the underdog freedom fighters to victory. While also realizing that my wife has some secrets that I need to know is the sort of the Hank Pym and Janet Van Dyne dynamic. Uh, You guys, Uh, you guys, your marriage is in trouble. Yeah, it's not a good it's not a great 
It's also, I don't know, the, part of me almost believes that Hank Pym is just lying about, because he, there's a line that he said, because it's very clear, uh, we haven't really talked about any of this, uh, but you, as Janet's like in the quantum realm, we realize all these people know her, and at one point Bill Murray shows up, and it's very clear that her and Bill Murray had uh, a sexual- A torrid affair. A torrid affair, and granted, she's been, she was in the quantum realm for 30 years- she had no idea if she would ever get out. She was presumed dead by her husband. Like, I think it's at that point understandable to to seek the embrace of one William Murray. But uh, in that scene, Hank Pym says, "Oh yeah, I had a woman," and he says some stuff about her. And I like, I don't know about you, but my head canon on that is like, no, he didn't. Yeah, like the only thing that maybe hinted that maybe he did was that he said her biggest flaw was that she wasn't you. Yeah, she was a sock. <laughs> she was a fleshlight. Um, <laughs> she she was a real doll. Yeah, <laughs> a, a cat woman real doll. Yeah, for sure. I think we got to the bottom of that. Um, but yeah, like I don't know. This movie, like, it's. So much is happening, but also nothing happens. Well, right. It's it's both, you know, meant to launch the next phase of the MCU and also feels unimportant. Yeah, like, um, I don't know. I think I feel like before we pivot, we have to talk about MODOK, but I'm getting near ready to pivot. OK, well, we also we don't have to spend a lot of time on this, but it would be weird to me get through this whole episode without also addressing the Jonathan majors of it all, which is they have a huge problem. And I don't know what to do in that Jonathan majors since this movie has been released is now uh, in a lot he's awaiting of, trial for uh, domestic abuse and domestic violence. I believe he's had charges like he's the trial is happening or yeah. Or the, uh, at the very least, there is a trial date. I don't know if it's it is. Yeah, but he's he's been accused by uh, a partner of. Uh, well, he was arrested like after an incident uh, with his partner in a cab, and that is truly horrible. And he, you know, is obviously being set up in these films and in Loki to be the sort of big bad villain going forward and Marvel hasn't announced what they're going to do. They haven't really addressed it at all, but it's, it's all not good. No. And it, 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 in, in a lot of ways, it feels like hang is more of a linchpin to this next chapter of the MCU than Thanos was to the first chapter. Well, I mean, infinity war wasn't called the Thanos war. <laughs> no. Yeah. Um. The Thanos was. I mean, Thanos was phenomenal and one of the all-time great uh, villain protagonists in cinema history. Yes. Um. But at the same time, he was just a guy trying to get the MacGuffin. Right. Yeah. And, and obviously, I mean, first of all, the MCU has no problem recasting an actor. Uh, just ask Terrence Howard or uh Ed Norton. Uh, or and, Catherine or um, whatever the actress that played Cassie in uh, Endgame. Oh, which, yeah. Oh, man. Now that you mentioned that, I, I don't know if you saw that, too. But when I was reading stuff for this, I did see that, like, they didn't really properly let her know 
that they had recast the role, which is just lousy to do. Because it was an actual kid who was playing Cassie, and then they did the time jump, which also, as much as I love Endgame, man, Marcus and McFeely and the, the Russos, they... They got out of there, <laughs> really leaving a bag for everyone else to fi- figure out this five-year time jump. Anyway, we're gone. Deuces. Yeah, but uh, but yeah, they recast Cassie to be older uh, because of the time jump. And yeah, apparently they didn't properly notify the original actor. Yeah, which- that she found like, and she, I mean, played it with a lot of maturity saying it's like, you know, I'm just thankful to be part of the MCU. It's a bummer to find out this way, but, you know, I had a good time doing Endgame and I'm on to the next thing. Well, she's a kid and she said that. And if it was me, I would never get over it. And I never could have released that graceful of a statement. So credit to no. her. Yeah. <laughs> big, big ups to her. Um, I know that when I got recast as James Bond, I, I threw a, a major fit. And But I know, think it was still, justified. I still dislike Daniel Craig. I'll just say it. Yeah. And I think it was cruel of them to let you go through the entire process and to film the entire movie before telling you you're not British. You can't play James Bond. And then reshooting it scene for scene. He's reshooting all of the scenes of Casino Royale with Daniel Craig instead of me. And, and I find out on the poster. And and look, you were kind enough. They were very secretive on that film, but you invited me to set. And I got to see you work. And you were a great James Bond. It was a little weird, I have to say, that the scene that you happened to invite me for was the one where you're fully nude and your testicles are being whipped by that rope. But you were great. I mean, listen, uh, you know, you were limited on what days you could come to set. And it was either that or the day that I walk out of the ocean wearing a tiny blue Speedo. <laughs> and, you, and you picked. Yeah, it was weird that you told me those were the only two. You told me I was busy and those were the only right, two days. Right, these go. are the only two days that you're able to come to set. <laughs> Make your choice, your move. I think I chose right. Yeah. Um, and the weird thing is there were no cameras that day. <laughs> it was just a rehearsal. Yeah. Um, you know, but I did my own stunts and I don't know. It was, it was, it was a good experience. What yeah. can I say? Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's so it'll be here. It'll be interesting to see what happens with Jonathan majors. Um, because like, I don't think he is worth separating the art from the artist, but like, He's great as an actor. Well, and I mean, for all the reasons that we talked about, let's be real for a second. Do you even care if they make the Kang Dynasty at this Not point? Not one iota. Not like, even if they a just bit. came out tomorrow and were like, look, you know what? We we see the writing on the wall. Like, the wheels have come off the bus. We're shutting it down for a year to to recoup. And everything we've announced, we're just stopping. And we're going to, like, just really put our heads together and come up with a plan. I think we'd all be fine with that. I think everyone would be like, yeah, that, that's fine. Because, um, I, I, yeah, I don't... Hell, if they just came out with, you know what, Pedro Pascal is going to fight a nihilist, and that's what we're going to do next. Yeah. Everyone would be like, all right. Yeah. And, it, like, as Pedro, if they, it was Pedro Pascal. Yeah, not Pedro Pascal as Reed Richards, just Pedro Pascal. Yeah, just him on his own with Bella Ramsey. It just... Like in his corner, just ready to go. Anyway, all right. So, Modok, you you clearly want to talk about Modok. Modok is a stupid character. 
I, I mean, Modoc, unless it's the animated Patton Oswalt one. Yeah. So Modok is a stupid character. I think intentionally. I hope intentionally because Modok is very silly. But yeah, that Patton Oswalt, uh, you know, like, is it claymation or whatever? It, like the stop motion effect. The, uh, robot chicken style stop motion. Yeah, it's robot chicken style stop motion. That show was gold from start to finish that modok show yeah and i highly recommend everyone watch it yeah i mean the weird thing is modok is a very ridiculous character and i think this movie played him as very ridiculous but what's weird is as we've been talking about it this movie is too serious tonally overall so he doesn't really fit into the movie that they're making i think uh, this version of Modoc, which is the the villain from the first movie coming back as Modoc. I think I'm fine with that as an idea, but only in the silly version of this movie. Yeah, the sillier Michael Pena, Judy Greer, uh, Bobby Cannavale showing up movie, we can have Modoc. And like, besides the fact that he didn't look great, like, I thought it was an interesting twist to have it be Darren Cross played by. Uh, I can't remember. I'm blank. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyways, um, you know, like all of that, uh, Corey Stoll, that's his name. Yes. Yeah. Um, like that was whatever. Like, I thought that was a fun way to like make sense of him being sucked into the quantum realm and showing up again. Like there were there, I think there were probably less delicate ways to do that. Um, and that sort of worked, but like, yeah, Modoc is not, you can't do Modoc in a serious movie because of how just flipping ridiculous he looks. Yeah. And also, again, we we've already <laughs> stuck up for the VFX artists who clearly were given an impossible task. But I don't understand the just the character design of Modoc in this with his like weirdly smooth giant face. It's a very yeah. weird choice. It's a very unpleasant choice. Like just I I don't know why they didn't go for like a wrinklier more disfigured Modoc and instead went for super smooth, like baby skin Modoc. Yeah, I, I've, there's there's no way that Modoc looks anything but ridiculous on in live action. First of all, yes. If if you're going to try to do anything approaching a comic accurate Modoc, yeah, there's no way that doesn't look ridiculous. Um. You know, in Marvel, I thought on the whole, the MCU has done a good job of taking some ridiculous looking characters and adapting them in ways that make sense for the movies, for the most part. Even Thanos is one of those. Like, if you really look at what Thanos looked like in the comics, it was a lot sillier than what we ended up with. Yeah, there's no Thanos copter in the movies, which I was a little bummed about. But yeah, um, but yeah, and like. But Modoc is sillier than anything the MCU has put forth as a major character combined. No, he's a giant head in a really advanced floating chair with tiny arms and legs. Right. Um, and you could probably take aspects of that and make it menacing. Maybe, but. Because like in the comics, he's actually a pretty legit, like interesting villain and has some interesting story. But then there's the Patton Oswalt show that's phenomenal um and yeah and it's just I, they could have left it out and 
Well, from what I understand, that I think their logic, and he didn't need to be Modoc for this, but their logic was that uh, Corey Stoll's character had been put in the quantum realm at the end of the first movie. So he was there, and therefore, because there, there was a lot of information that Kang had in the film that they were like, how does he know this stuff about all of them? And that was their right. their way to address that. Again, you could probably address it different ways. I mean, he befriended um, Michelle Pfeiffer's character, Janet. Like, she could have told him everything, you know? Right. Um, But I'm ready to pivot. Yeah. I don't know. I mean... I think um, we... I think we hit the the broad strokes both on a micro level and a macro level, which is fitting for Ant Man to do a micro. I would say level. almost on a quantum level, we we hit all of this. <laughs> yeah. Uh. So the opening scene and the closing scene are great bookends for this movie. Are great bookends for this movie, and they're the tone of the movie that I wished I had watched the whole time. Yes. And like just start to finish, because again, I we we played the closing one to start the show, but that one has the turn in it, obviously, with the like darker anxiety kicking in. But the the first one's just the more played upbeat version of it where he's just going about his day and it's playing the welcome back and he's kind of recapping everything and we get his clearly terrible book about being ant-man that he's reading from but it sold well because it's a superhero that wrote a book so like that all tracks oh yeah no it would sell well but it would be terrible like i read the rocks biography (laughs) me too man i do miss that era of before mick foley changed the game by actually writing his book of the slapped together wrestler and ghost writer uh you know 200 page biography (laughs) Um, yeah, you know, that to read, you know, because Stone Cold said so, or do you smell what the rock is cooking or any of the, those slapdash ones? Um, but no, yeah, Mick Foley definitely changed the game and <laughs> in those, um, pretty early on, but then people still kept putting out the, the slapdash, uh, to be the man, the Ric Flair story. But it's interesting because it's like now wrestlers have to write their own books where Becky Lynch has a book coming out and, and some there's been some amazing wrestler biographies like since that Bret Hart's is one of the best is really good that I've ever uh, read. John Moxley's is actually really good too yeah and like Jericho's book is good like yeah the guys that like now the trend is actually writing them and and uh AJ AJ Lee's uh book crazy is my superpower I really enjoyed as well yeah I've, I've not read that one but I've, I've heard very good things about it not yeah. just from you but from you know others yeah uh, but yeah, it's, um, I don't know how we got off on this tangent. Oh, well, I was, because, uh, the, because Scott's book in the movie. Scott's book is obviously garbage. Yeah. It, it's the bad. And he definitely had a ghostwriter for that. I would imagine. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and like, that was fun. And like, that was the tone of the movie. I think we were looking for, um, and you could have kept that tone with the same plot beats. And I think it was a mistake for them not to. Right. No, I, I, I agree like with you that we definitely could have gone to the quantum realm. But yeah, a sillier version of the again, the version that has holds the holds guy. And and like, I feel like a lot of the characters that they meet at first are, are wacky in the, the right way. But then very quickly, it just shifts into this very like 
everything is very serious. And like, it's very jarring to see Bill Murray in this movie being a real drag. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, you know, regardless of his many flaws as a human being, I still love Bill Murray. But I just mean comedically, like he's just a wet blanket character in this movie. <laughs> yeah, no, he's like kind of a villain ish. But it's not even and developed enough. He's just unpleasant to be around in the movie. He's just a douche. Yeah, pretty much. And there's that's and all not there. in a fun way at all. No, that's what I mean. It's like there's a lot of things that they could have given him to play that he could have played well. And instead, he's just a guy you don't want to have lunch with. Like he could have played that as Big Earn McCracken from Kingpin, and that would have been the right choice. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, to be fair, anything Bill Murray does, if he played it like he was Earn McCracken from Kingpin, is probably other than Peter Venkman is probably the right choice. Which, if you listen to our shows last month, I'd just like to point out Aubrey Plaza could play all these parts. A hundred. Oh yeah, that's that goes without saying. And she could have played um, the Janet Van Dyke's former lover from the Quantum Realm in this movie. Yeah. And she could have played Kang. She should play Kang. Look, Marvel. Listen. Easy solution. <laughs> Janet Van Dyne or uh, Aubrey Plaza as Kang. Yeah. Grumpy Kang. With no explanation. Grumpy Kang. <laughs> That's my pitch. Yeah. It's Grumpy Kang. But also, um, we're, we're in the silver linings, and so we're staying positive. Uh, so I do, I want to keep it going. And and I want to give a shout out to the man, uh, Ruben Rabasa. Uh, from uh, from I think you should leave fame who every once in a while his videos pop up on Instagram too it does not seem like he ever is playing a character in any movie he no. just seems like he's that guy but he plays the um, it's like the coffee shop employee that at first mistakes Ant-Man for Spider-Man and then charges yes. him $12 for a coffee at the end of the movie and that's just a great moment yeah, and he's just a ridiculous... He's the you-love-your-mother-in-law guy from I Think You Should Leave. Yeah. So I enjoyed um, him. He's like the... We don't get the the normal cast of characters that we want to see, but we do get him, and that was fun. Um, I will say I also enjoyed... I mean, the jokes were thin a little bit, but William Jackson Harper as Quaz with his mind-reading power. That character had so much potential, and what he does, especially the the opening scene is really great and William Jackson Harper is the right person to play that because anyone who's watched the good place he, his my favorite gear of his is the like put exasperated. upon yeah like exasperated put upon uh a character and so yeah just the the horrible weight of being able to know what everyone thinks at all times because he demonstrated just what a hell on earth that would be. Yeah. And like only a few scenes, he makes it very clear. And he it honestly is a pretty good uh, solution at the end of the movie when they are trying to overtake the bridge and they need a code. And he's able to read the guy. The guy's like, I'll never give it up. And then he's like, the code is blah, 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 because he can read the guy's mind. That was nice. Yeah, like it all tracks. Yeah. Um, no, he's a great character. I would have loved a lot more of that character. Yeah, just some interesting ways to explore that idea. Um, when they actually got the special effects right in this movie, they are really good. Yeah, I I think weirdly, I think more often than not, it was on the the side of 
uh, Janet and Hank Pym were like their their scenes seem to be better lit and they seem to be flying into these beautiful locales and had lots of like you know pink pink wacky sunsets and, and wacky monsters where it, it seemed like they they stuck actual Ant-Man and his daughter were in the unlit portion of the quantum realm. <laughs> um yeah, and I mean, you know, it has an end like uh the the cast like it is a good cast. Yeah, and you know, Michael Douglas is great, Michelle Pfeiffer's great, Catherine Newton's great, Evangeline Lilly's great, Paul etc. 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 And I know you said it, but just to say it again, Michelle Pfeiffer is great. And I think my biggest so because everyone else in the movie we've kind of seen in the previous movies, but by the nature of her character and the storyline, we didn't really get to see her until this movie. And I think well, I don't always think it's successful, I love that they focus on her and kind of give her this life that she clearly spent the last 30 years of her life living and making choices. And honestly, I just love seeing Michelle Pfeiffer on screen. She's great. And I'm, I'm yeah, a big she's, fan of her. Yeah. She's phenomenal. Um, you know that. Yeah. She's, and she's, she's really good in this movie too. Yeah. That's what I mean is like, we finally got to see who her character was. I don't think we got to see that until this movie. And well, no, because she'd had more, little more than a cameo and everything else. Yeah, so like to actually spend time with her and get to know that character, she's great. Um, I know. I think we did it. I think we did it. I think we definitely found the silver linings of our first uh, Malign twenty twenty three movie here, the first week of twenty twenty four. But it won't be the last. That I guarantee you. What do... if it is? Oh my god! Ah, it's probably fine. Welcome back. Welcome back. Silver Linings Playback is a production of HoboTrashCan.com. If you enjoyed the show, please rate or review it on Apple Podcasts. Hear more great shows on the Peak Sloth Podcast Network, like this one. This is Philip and Katie and Bridget, and we're three friends who like movies. Especially movies of yore when we were small and everything seemed awesome. Now we're revisiting these bright shining beacons of our youth and figuring out if they are for real. So sit back and relax and revisit the best, the worst, and everything in between from the 80s and 90s. And find out, is, is it for real?